Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense went up with the prayers of the saints, out of the angel's hand before God. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. And the first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up. And all the green grass was burned up. And the second angel sounded something like a great mountain burning. And the fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea, those which had life, died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Then I looked, and I heard an, an eagle flying in the mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Father, we do come now humbly desiring to learn from what you have set before us. Learn from the vision that you gave to the Apostle John, which has been handed down to us. That even as we look towards the future, that we would see the importance of all that is here. That we would be able to place ourselves in the midst of this context, and that we would learn the ways that it should impact the way we live today. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as a parent, I always kind of keep one eye on the present and enjoying my children while they are little, but I also know one day that I have to keep the other eye on the horizon that they won't always be in the home. And so there are certain things that I could do for them that as they grow, you start to say, well, let's let them try this, right? Let's let them handle the dishes. And yeah, they may break one or two, but eventually they're going to have to be able to govern themselves. They're going to have to be able to live on their own. And so you kind of have that back and forth of giving a little responsibility, kind of seeing if they're faithful in a little, then Maybe see if they're faithful in much. But I, I derive joy from that. I derive joy from seeing them grow, from seeing them develop as humans. In my case, my four boys develop as men. There are things, as I said, that I could do. But I choose not to do them because I want them to develop. I can't protect them in all means. 
there are certain activities we put our children in, and this would include all of us, where we want them to learn certain things. I would like them to learn anger, frustration, failure. But I, I kind of like it when it's learned on a basketball court like this. And so I, I do love how sports with kids, it, it kind of serves as a small little laboratory for life. Again, I wouldn't have to have them do those things, right? But I, I get joy from seeing them do and grow and learn. And just because the game, we had two basketball games yesterday morning, has really no impact on the rest of their life in one sense, who won, who lost. I mean, if you've watched basketball with eight and ten-year-olds, it's, it's chaos, lots of double dribble, lots of traveling. They break all the rules. But I do know it is working towards something, and it's not a waste. There's value in it because of the lessons being learned. As I approach the book of Revelation, and I've read a lot of different books, a lot of different commentaries, and there are a lot, obviously, who take a different view than I would take on the future for this book. A lot of people would say these things have happened, or these things are simply symbolic, or they're simply types of events that are concurrently happening today. And then, you know, you look at Revelation 8, and you look at some of these severe judgments, and I just go, well, we see wars, we see famine, we see ecological disasters, we see asteroids, but we don't see Revelation chapter 8. But I also think that one of the reasons people go there in their minds is they don't appreciate the fact that God takes pleasure, God takes joy in working through people. You see that throughout Scripture. He didn't have to make Adam and Eve. He didn't have to make the angelic hosts. But he did. He takes joy in creating. He takes joy in creating men and women in, in his image. And so when you get to Revelation, and for me, when I see and I go, this seems this is futuristic. These events are to come. A lot of people go, well, why? Because we've already seen the cross. We've already seen the, the greatest event why do we need more events? Why won't Jesus just return and it kind of will just all kind of happen together and we'll go to be with the Lord in heaven, which does sound wonderful. Why did these events have to happen? Well, because there's purpose in them. He could do it a different way, but he has always worked through real individuals, through real history. And it makes sense to me as I come to Revelation 8, you go, yes, this is horrific. Yes, this is a time where you don't want to be there. And I don't believe the church will be. But it is to say it has a purpose in God's redemptive plan that he is accomplishing something which he will get glory for, not just in the moment and the future, but throughout all eternity. It's going to play out in real history in real time because God takes pleasure in that. And so when you come to Revelation and you see all of these things, there's lots of events. There's lots of things that are going on and that are happening. And I go, they all have purpose and they all bring God immense glory. We've looked at this a few different times. Um, this chart of the last days, just kind of give you a framework. We're in this pe period where we've seen Revelation in those first three chapters. We've seen the things that are. We've seen the ad address of the seven churches. But then also the visions of John are futuristic in that they are things that will be in the future. Things that will come including in this era here of the tribulation period of that first three and a half years and the second three and a half year period where all these events are happening. And then throughout that, part of what's going on is the judgment. And again, there is 
judgment that must happen. We saw that at the cross. Someone has to bear the penalty. That is how God works because he is perfectly just. And so it's going to happen not just to individuals, but it's going to happen the judgment of sin that has happened in the earth. And this is the means by which God is reclaiming his rightful throne. We saw Revelation chapter 5 that Jesus is the lamb, though is slain, who is worthy to open that scroll, that title deed to the universe, to take back. And one of the means by taking back is that everyone sees it, the angelic host, all of those, the saints, the church, we all see this and we give him glory. He takes it back in real history, in real time, in real events, and he takes it back through these judgments, through these different events. We began looking at after we get from the throne room of heaven, he cracks open the seal of that title deed. And in this are these judgments, these seven seals. And then we did the first six seals and we looked at that period of where then what about the question of what about God's people Israel? What about the nations and the Gentiles? And we saw God's promises will be fulfilled to them as well in chapter 7. And then we come back to where we are this morning and we see the seventh seal cracked open and that seventh seal contains the other judgments. And so it's this kind of idea of it's all contained in like a telescope. And as it pulls out, you see more and more. And so it's all contained within, but that seventh seal then has these seven trumpets. And then the seventh trumpet is going to contain those seven bowls. But they all retain back to the judgment being poured out. Again, it's purposeful in that it is the means by which God is taking back what is rightfully his. One of the means we're going to see, well, it's an overview kind of where we've been with the seven seals here, that the first seal we saw is the white horse, the Antichrist's false peace that comes. The horse, remember, he had no arrows. He doesn't take things by force, but through peace, through kind of politicking and all of those things. The second one is that the red horse brings war. The Antichrist is in global war. The famine of the black horse and the pale horse where disease and all these things come to fruition and you see a fourth of the earth destroyed or killed. And this is going to be important for us this morning because that fifth seal we looked at and we saw and it's a unique judgment because how can prayer be judgment? And I think the answer is going to be here in that their prayer for vengeance in chapter 5 will be Fulfilled. So looking back, if you're just back a page or two of chapter 6, it says 6 verse 9, And when he, when Christ, the worthy one, the Lamb, opened the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls. Because we're going to come back to the altar here. The souls who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the witness which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, which is another kind of important repetitive term, This is a loud moment, and heaven is loud. Saying, how long, O Master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the answer was, verse 11, after it describes the white robe given to each one of them, it was told to them that they should rest for a little while longer. Until the number of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. 
And so in one sense, that's horrific. People are being martyred for what they believe about Jesus, that he is the Son of God. But it's also comforting, and you're going to see as well that there is a moment here where even as the judgments come, there are those who will repent and turn to Christ. And so the judgment is met out, but he does not take joy in it, but he is patient and loving and kind. And there's opportunity for those, even in the tribulation period, as they see these things. We saw all the cosmological destruction of the sixth seal. The great day, verse 17 of chapter 6, that has come, who is able to stand. And now you come to the seventh seal in chapter 8. And that seventh seal, we could call, it is the fifth seal answered. When will this happen? This is chapter 8. This is a little while later. When the prayers of the saints will be answered and the king will return. And this is the way I think of what's going on in chapter 8. And again, it's because God takes joy in working through people, through working through his church, working through you. That the prayers of the saints end up being literally the fuel, the fire. The return, they fuel the return of the rightful king of the earth. They will be here when the king returns. That's really what is going on here in all of Revelation. It is this return of the rightful king to his rightful place. Look at verse 1 with me and let's look at how this is possible. We're just going to walk through the text and then look at a couple implications. The prayers of the saints fuel the return of the rightful king of the earth. Chapter 8 begins, verse 1, with the cracking of the seventh seal. So he is the worthy lamb. He is Jesus. He opens the seventh seal and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. There are moments in Revelation where you're shocked by the um, specificity, that it's very specific. And John's just recording what he saw, and he's just telling you this. All of a sudden, after all of this that I saw, there was a moment of silence. And he equates it to what felt like a half an hour. Everything else about this text is loud. And that's kind of where I see one of the interesting contrasts. The trumpets that are going to be blown. The trumpets that are mentioned 17 different times in Revelation are contrasted to the silence. Up to this moment, everything has been loud. If you go back to Revelation chapter 4 to see the contrast of the silence. You see in chapter 4 verse 1 that after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. So heaven up to this point in chapter 8 has been Loud, he first hears a voice like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me. Come up here, I will show you what must take place after these things. Verse 5 of chapter 4, And out of the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals and thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Flashes of lightning, sounds, and peals of thunders, which will return in chapter 8. They're singing day and night. Holy, holy is the Lord, verse 8, the Almighty who was and who is to come. 
the 24 elders, they fall down at their feet and they sing, worthy, verse 11, are you Lord, our Lord, our God, to receive glory, honor, power, for you created all things because of your will they existed and were created. So the picture of heaven in chapter 4 and chapter 5 is one of noise, of loudness, of singing. And so it's even wondering what this silence really is. And we don't have all the details, but let me continue to look at the loudness in chapter 5, verse 2. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll, to break the seals. Chapter 5, verse 8. And he had taken the scroll of four living creatures, and the twenty-four elders fell before the Lord, each one having a harp and the golden bowls of incense, which we're going to see here, golden bowls of incense, which are the, the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, and they sing together. Sing with a loud voice, verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches under the earth, on the sea, and all things in them. Every creature sings here. They all fall down. They all worship. Chapter 6. I looked, verse 1, when the Lamb opened the one of the seven seals, I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud, with a voice of thunder. People speak. It is like thunder. It is loud. It is a trumpet. And I could go on and on and on. And maybe the one that I find most interesting is that chapter 7, verse 4. He sees things. He hears things. In fact, he doesn't just see chapter 4, the ceiling of the 144,000. If you look at chapter 7, verse 4, he says that I heard the number of those being sealed. Which is interesting. Just all of a sudden you kind of imagine just poop. He hears a noise. And so the silence in heaven in verse 1 must have been a moment of just unlike anything they have seen before. Some have suggested that it is a moment of silence between the more harsh trumpets and their judgments of the seventh seal, especially the last four, or the last three, excuse me, where you're going to see significant death. And so perhaps the silence is a moment of will people repent? And the Lord is being kind, silence. Their destruction stops for a moment in time. The, the decibel meter goes to, to zero. They're able to register it, and it's only for a brief moment because it's about to pick back up in verse 2 because everything else now is going to pick back up, and it is going to be loud. It's going to be described as trumpets being blown. But there is power in the silence. I remember uh, taking someone to a, a conference a number of years ago, and I feel like I'm a very—I'm not saying—you know, I don't feel like I'm that good of a preacher, but I feel like I'm a really good armchair preacher, kind of like the armchair quarterback. Like, I know good preaching. Um, and they were talking about how much they enjoyed it. If you guys know Vody Bauckham. And I said, well, you know why Vody's such—like, one of the things you see in Vody, what he's best at. Why is Vody such a good preacher? And Vody is such a good preacher because no one pauses better than Vody Bauckham. And he's got everything going. He's got the deep, loud voice. And then it's just booming, booming. And then pauses. And he always does so in a way where he, you can tell he knows what he's going to say. And you're kind of waiting for him to say it. He knows. And then he says it. And it just becomes 
impactful. That's kind of how I view whatever the silence here is. It's meant for an impact, to impact those in heaven, to impact those on earth. It's, it's a pause that kind of extenuates how loud it's been and how loud it is going to be here as we go into verse 2. That the seven angels who stand before the Lord, verse 2, and the seven trumpets are given to them. These angels who are before the throne don't know much more than that about them. Some is written on them, but it is to say perhaps they're unique or privileged in, in that way. Perhaps Gabriel's one of them, perhaps. We, but another angel, and this is where the key to understanding what is going on is going to be this idea of the altar and this idea of understanding the Old Testament significance of the altar and then kind of coming back to this concept that the prayer of the saints, God is going to work through them. Because this third angel, I mean the the eighth angel in verse 3, came and stood at the altar having a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense went up with the prayers of the saints out of the angel's hand before God. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And so we don't use a lot of incense. Some of you might have your, uh, oh, uh, whatever the natural oils are, you know, steaming or light a candle and those things. But I remember when I was in Israel on on a study trip, you saw a little bit more of that in the Eastern Orthodox Church. And this idea of this censer being something that is, in this case, golden and round, which contains coals. And of course, coals that are smoldering give off smoke, and they put in things there that make them smell a certain way, and it gives off this incense. But what John is going back to is what not necessarily all of his Gentile audience would immediately understand, but just like a lot of Revelation, what all of his Bible students would Because there's two altars in the tabernacle or the temple. And he's talking about the two different, um, the two different altars. You look at um, Hebrews chapter 7, or excuse me, Hebrews uh, chapter 9. And you see that it talks about the temple, the tabernacle reflecting. It kind of uses the word copies of, of heaven, of what's going on in heaven and it discusses those things. But the tabernacle had two altars. And so again, it's reflected of what is going on in heaven. And so he's saying, and it would flash back to both Exodus 27 and Exodus 30. And the tabernacle had two altars, an altar of sacrifice and an altar of incense. And these become hugely important in our understanding of what Christ has done. The way that sacrificial system worked in the Old Testament where they'd have the sacrificial, the altar of sacrifice outside where you'd see the animals sacrificed for sin. And then brought those coals in that would burn at the altar of the inner chamber. In fact, it's probably worth it. Go back to Exodus chapter 30 and you can, if you want to do a little more study on what it looked like, 27, uh, 29, and then for our kind of purposes, looking at the altar of incense particularly, what, it, what its purpose was will help us understand what is the picture here. 
But Exodus chapter 30, just kind of briefly looking at these first few verses, it says they're instructed that, Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place for burning incense. And so if you don't have a picture of an altar um, in your mind, you, you can kind of look and, and you can see it's described here. So it's a place of burning incense that would be outside the veil, inside, not in the holies of holies, but still not outside like the altar of sacrifice would be in. A place for burning incense, and you will make it of acacia wood. And its length shall be a cubit, and it's with the cubit. It shall be square, and its height shall be two cubits. Its horns shall be of the same piece. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and its sides all around, and its horns. And you shall make a gold molding all around for it. So again, that idea of gold, it's that picture here. You shall make two gold rings for it under its molding, and you shall make them on its two side walls and opposite sides, and they shall be holders for poles to which, carry, to which to carry it. And you shall make the poles of the acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put this altar in front of the veil, so it's in the inner, inner chamber. You shall put it in front of the veil that is near the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet you. So this is a pretty powerful imagery of this altar which is burning before the Lord and saying, the Lord is saying, this is what you shall do and this is where this, I will meet you and the incense will be a pleasing aroma to him. Verse 7, Aaron shall burn it, fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. And when Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense and there shall be continual incense before Yahweh throughout your generations. So this is meant to continue over and over and over and Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. And he shall make an atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year through your generations. It is most holy to Yahweh. And so now as you flip back to Revelation, that is the picture of the altar we are dealing with here. And then you start to see the repetition of um, verse 3. He stood at the altar, the golden altar. The angel is going to take fire from the altar. And it's talking about these altars of which they were burning incense and in which they were making atonement for. Because the picture then is going to be built upon something different here because it's not the way the angel will not do what the priest does, but it's the same concept. The sacrifice then of Christ is going to be put together with the prayers of the saints and cast out over the earth. And this idea of judgment. And so picture here, the angel comes, stands at that altar we just read about, has a golden censer full of these coals, which are burning incense, and much incense, kind of idea of much of these prayers. Chapter 5, the martyrs, all the saints given to him, they might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And then, so he takes those prayers of the saints you could say this, the picture is of the very nature of the sacrifice of Christ. And then the smoke of that, the incense went up with the prayers of the saints out of the angel's hands before God. And there's a sense in which it stirs together this moment where the angel then takes it. He takes it with fire from the altar, and that would be the altar of sacrifice, throws it on the earth, and then... There is silence no more, right? Because now we pick back up with the following of the peals and thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and of an earthquake. 
probably the most well-known Old Testament story where this is not done rightly is the strange fire of Leviticus 10 of Nadab and Abihu. That wasn't pleasing to the Lord, but you saw it was important to the Lord as it said in Exodus 30. This is so important that this is the picture of this event before the wrath is poured out of the seventh seal. I think it does reflect what is going on here as we approach the cracking of this seal. Hebrews 7, 25, thinking of the nature of the gospel, says, therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is both the high priest and the sacrifice And you see here that picture of the inner working with, I don't think Jesus is the angel here, but it is to say this picture of all these, the sacrificial system being finally fulfilled in real time, in real place, being poured out on the world. So the recipe for for judgment here is one angel plus equal parts of prayer of the saints and of wrath. And it's sprinkled all over the earth. And that is the introduction then to what comes next of these different trumpets being blown. God takes the incense, casts it, and you're finally going to hear the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the martyrs, the prayer of the end of Revelation, come Lord, come, answered. And then the trumpets begin to sound. Look at verse 6. The seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. And the first sounded, and there came hail, fire, mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Trumpets throughout the scriptures are important. They announce significant events. They declare war. They assemble the people. They're used in celebrations. They're used to introduce kings call attention to God himself. And throughout Revelation, you see a call to attention usually towards the announcement of judgment. And that's exactly what they're used here for, the judgment that is coming. The first one being described as bringing hail and fire mixed with blood, burning up a third, which think of the significance of that. And all the green grass was burned up. This is, we've had judgment. We've had six other seals. That is to say, this seventh seal, it is getting worse. This is the great tribulation of which all these things, not just, as you'll see, more ecological of verses 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, before you get to more judgments that affect all of the people. Of course, you affect the world we live in. You're going to affect people. But the judgments of the final three are going to be the whoa, 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 because they impact all of the humans. The second angel blows its trumpet Something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Perhaps a volcano erupts, we're not sure. A third of the sea becomes as blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea, and those were, that had life died, and a third of the ships are destroyed. And that is to say, you see, again, the ecological, the ecological disasters continue. And then the third trumpet, the star, a great star falls from the heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the spring of waters. And the name of that star is called Wormwood, which most of you probably have some kind of superscript there of that idea of bitter. 
and a third of the waters become wormwood. That has become so bitter that they cannot be drank out of. The many men, it says, died from the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel continues. Again, all of these disasters on the earth. The fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and a day would not shine for a third of it and night in the same way. And often darkness associated with judgment as you look throughout scripture and you see whether it's Joel or whether it's Amos or Isaiah 13, there's a time of darkness that associates, that accompanies the day of the Lord. And then he looks because what we've seen so far is mainly focused around the earth and that creation, not people. And what we're going to see next week is the next and final three where that is where more people are impacted And he's saying, if you have survived so far, the eagle flying in mid-heaven says with a loud voice, not usually do eagles speak, but here they do. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. The warning, this is not over. This is going to get worse. Luke 21 I think it references some of these events. There'll be signs in the sun and the moons and the stars and on the earth anguish among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the seas and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of heavens will be shaken. This is here in part, and we've seen it week after week after week, so that we know what is coming and that you should not be shocked. And you should be motivated to not only come to Christ, but to serve Christ. And I would say in particular, we're going to see the impact on yours and I's prayers. Because what about as you look at this and these future events and all these things that are happening, and it's just going to get worse next week. But it is to say, what about our response today? I think as you look at the altar and you look at what is going on and you look and you say, God is going to, in the future, use and work through those prayers of all the saints and their hopes and wishes that are true and right, that the king return, the king deal with judgment, that he make all that is wrong right. And so one response for us would be to pray in light of the truth of the gospel to pray in light of what Christ has done. Because if you don't offer prayer through that altar of sacrifice, if you don't pray through that, then your prayer is not heard. It is ultimately just strange fire that the Lord does not accept. Prayer is only accepted through the blood of the Lamb. And so we should pray in light of the gospel, and we should pray in light of future judgment. That is, vengeance is the Lord. It is in the future, but it should bring some comfort to us. And it should affect the way that we pray, knowing that you might think, well, prayer has no impact. Prayer has no impact on my life today or tomorrow. And this is a testimony to say, no, it's an impact on today. It's an impact on your life and your family. And it's also an impact on the future. And the means by which the Lord is saying, I will use this to cast out over the earth and the judgments of the seventh, the seven trumpets that you see here. 
So I think pray in light of the gospel. Pray in light of future judgment. But this morning we are coming before the Lord's table and celebrating together. And I think as you think about what the tabernacle, what the temple represented, flip over to Hebrews chapter 9. Because that emphasis on the altar (coughs) is intentional. It it is meant to spark an understanding of what the Lord was doing and has been doing from the beginning through Israel to bless the nations through his son. Hebrews chapter 9, talking of the new covenant and what we are doing when we partake the Lord's table together, it is we are celebrating the new covenant. I look at just verse 11 of Hebrews 9. So when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy places once for all, having obtained eternal redemption for... If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who had been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, as you and I, So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the trespasses that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For for where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Again, why is there blood? Why is there an altar? Why is that sitting in Revelation chapter 8? Because it's sitting in Exodus 27. It's sitting in Exodus 30. And Hebrews is bringing out what is the connection to the new covenant. What is the connection to those sacrifices, to the sacrifice of Christ? For in every commandment, verse 19, it's been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law. He took the blood of the calves and the goats with water, scarlet wool, hyssop, sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, both the tabernacle and all the vests of the ministry sprinkled with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And this is where this is helpful as you approach Revelation 8. It says, therefore, it is necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter holy places made with hands, mere copies of the true ones, but into heaven itself. In other words, he, he didn't just go offer a sacrifice in a tent or in a ta- uh, temple, but he actually made a sacrifice that was eternal. Now to appear in the presence of God for us, he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, so it's not burning incense every morning, it's not doing the sprinkling of the blood for atonement yearly. No. As the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own, otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, it says, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been 
manifested, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is what we celebrate. We proclaim the death of the Lord through communion. And inasmuch it is appointed for a man to die, men to what, what die wants, and after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. He's the sacrifice once and for all. He is what all of those things, we get into chapter 10, the shadow, that imagery pointed towards in Christ. And when you look at Revelation chapter 8, you see that picture picked up upon the altar and the prayers of the saints. That they have been sanctified because of the blood of Christ. As we come to the Lord's table, this is something that uh, we as a church, if you confess these truths, you believe the gospel, you've repented of your sin and you trust in him, we encourage you to join with us in partaking of this. But also recognize, if you were to look at 1 Corinthians 11, that this is something you want to take seriously and understand what it means that there is the confession. Very similar to when you confess the Lord through the waters of baptisms, um, we are together confessing the truth that we believe these things of the gospel about Christ, and we are confessing together, proclaiming his truth until he returns. That's what we are about to do together. And as then we go on and we continue to pray that the Lord will one day return, that the Lord will one day wipe away every tear and make all wrongs right. And those prayers you pray, Revelation 8 says, become part of the prayers the Lord uses there when that moment in history comes. But let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessing before we pass the elements. Father, thank you that as we look to the truth of your word, that no place, especially as we look to Revelation, um, is too far from Christ. That he is sitting in heaven, that he is the, the worthy lamb, worthy to crack open the seals, and that he is as well presented here as both in Hebrews 9, the high priest for us, who is able to offer the sacrifice, but he is also the sacrifice, the perfect one, fully God and fully man, that he might bear our sin for us. If we were to turn from our sin and trust and believe in what he has done for us. So as we come to the table and we sing together and we look at what these elements represent, encourage us this morning to see as we look back at what Christ has done, but also looking forward to what he will do, and to rejoice and to worship and sing together that he is worthy. We just ask this in his name. Amen.